one day I'll be big and strong. For now I'm just moving along. Give me my sim for my coffee and complex. Let me wake up to the day. Hello, welcome once again to The Exchange, presented by Owen Specialty Coffee, hosted by Mark Inman and Todd Mackey. I'm Mike Ferguson. In this episode, Mark and Todd talk about beer, music, and coffee blending theory, with a little history thrown in. The title of the Mark Pentagrass book that Mark can't remember is Uncommon Grounds. And now, Mark and Todd. So let's shift the touch here. You know, I'm curious. You have uh, a few more seasons in the field uh, than <laughs> than myself. What is like? Give me the three things that you've seen as like just the worst, um, the, the worst mistakes that can be made when it comes to trying to create a legacy around a blend. Right? You got a roaster who's hitting a stride has a product, let's say, you know, has their marketing lined up, their message is concise, it's right. You know, from a supply standpoint, you know, what are the, the three biggest mistakes that you see? Well, I, I'll tell you what I've seen. I mean, and I did it to myself in one of the cases was back when we talked about it on the first episode when I was doing organics in the early 90s and they just weren't available, um, was using a natural Ethiopian organic in a blend that I intended to have year round and it wasn't available a and B it fell off like a cliff on the second half of the year. And so when the blend was great, it was great. And when it wasn't great, it was not great. And for a customer standpoint, that was a complete disaster. And, uh, to the point that this is before I even had the mindset of a blend can be seasonal. It doesn't have to be uh, year round, but using a coffee, that is either hard to find uh, year round or has a real strong drop off point at one one point um, or blending without the mindset of I need a substitution that is of a like profile on the second half of the season uh, when the coffee drops off so that there are interchangeable parts to the blend. I think one of the bigger mistakes that that roasters make when they're new is, you know, the, they make a blend and they want to say, oh, the blend is 60% this, 40% that, 30% this. And for me, single origin is about naming the coffee or the farm or the variety. A blend is about naming a profile. And the profile may not have those same ingredients all the time, as long as the taste profile stays consistent. So, it's going in with that theory. It's the theory that the parts are interchangeable, but the flavor, what the target flavor of this coffee is, is a constant. How about you? What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I, I, I go back to uh, very similar things in terms of, you know, I probably, you know, the, the, the sort of lazy inventory management, if I can say that without sounding too aggressive, but, you know, the, the buying sort of, uh, you know, haphazardly up front with the, the, the foresight of, of eventually having to dump a coffee and, you know, using blends as a, as a way to deal with that and, or, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. kind of taking, you know, faithful blend buyers for granted and, and 
being overly opportunistic about sort of bottom feeding coffees and, you know, and trying to just eke out margin, you know, where you might have uh, for years people who are faithfully, you know, buying Blend X and, uh, you know, you're putting coffees into it um, that, you know, fit that sort of, let's call it uh, an avatar, you know, avatar type profile that tastes of, you know, very specific, consistent uh, notes interseasonally. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the market shifts out of your favor or maybe, you know, you're just sort of, you know, you get to a point where, you know, your faith and confidence in your customer's discernment um, is in question. And, you know, you start sort of trying to sneak coffees in under the radar. And, um, you know, and, and while it's often very difficult, you know, I was mentioning earlier, it seems very difficult for a, sort of a pedestrian coffee consumer uh, or specialty coffee consumer to really describe the experience they're having. I mean, it's still intensely personal and really uh, quite an intimate thing. And, you know, you just see this blow up on people um, and it's it's hard to watch. You know, it's uh, right. uh, whether caused by, you know, just a, a long position on coffees that there's no other way to sort of uh, let go or deal with. Um, or it's it's more of a sort of a, a aggressive act, if you will, to sort of you know to find um, a bit more room or to kind of you know be more opportunistic. Um, but that's sure. that's the biggest thing to me. Um, you know, I think the the other thing is is uh, you know is just sort of saturating the list with too many blends, too many blends oh, without a doubt, without yeah. a reason. You know, with yeah. without a, a unique why. For each one, you know, why do I buy this versus this? I mean, you know, we really, you know, the industry has always, and, and even though it's come so far, it still seems to just need clear indicators, whether the end consumer and or retailers, you know, need clear indicators as to what is this for, right? Um, I sure. think, you know, that's why, I mean, until relatively recently, I mean, you know, a lot of roasters, if not most, would sell, you know, a quote unquote espresso blend, um, right. you know, even titled expressly as that, you know, just espresso hmm. only, right? Because, right. you know, it's it's not to say you can't make espresso out of anything, uh, but, you know, sure. it, it was the indicator to someone, hey, this is good for that, right? Um, and uh, Well, I and sometimes like, if you messed around, you'd, you would, you know, on a whim, brew their espresso blend as a drip brew, and you'd be like, wow, this is actually a really nice drip blend <laughs> sure but but I, on my way had a door. dual purpose that they didn't market it for sure sure no but, it, but it's it's interesting because you know in my first uh barista gig my impression was because of that indicator was like oh no this is for espresso you can't do that with it right right and no and no right. one told me so you know so flash forward and it's it's laughable it's silly but i still think that you know we undervalue where consumers and and even some of our partners in other segments you know where they are with relation to that stuff you know in terms of knowing what to do with something and then knowing you know why it matters to them to to fold it into what they're doing um so that's a a big mistake i feel like i see so another shift let's uh let's talk about you know just kind of the nuts and bolts of blending i mean obviously depending on the complexity of your plant um, you know, your roastery, what kind of tools you have or don't have. 
I mean, you know, in terms of managing the process of blending, Mm -hmm. you know, there's very little out there in terms of, you know, teaching best practice for, you know, blending up front, behind. Obviously, there's some artistic justification for the the latter or the prior. Um, What what are the the sort of basics that you go over when you're, you know, working with someone who's relatively new? What are your recommendations? Well, I'll tell you, there's a couple areas that I uh, recommend, and, and I... And it's also how I learned how to blend coffee. Uh, one is is I'm fascinated by uh, the old, you know, classic blends. If you have a, a chance to talk to the, the an older person in the industry, uh, older than me, uh, somebody who had been, you know, roasting in the 50s and 60s, or if you have access to texts about the 40s and 30s, it's interesting to read about the coffees that they blended with and why they blended. And so I started categorizing like the World War II U.S. Army blend, what they used as a coffee, the original Dunkin' Donuts blend, the Illy blend. You know, why did they do it that way? And it's fascinating. It, it will expose you to coffees that you wouldn't normally look at. And so I always say start there. Start with something that already is well-known and try to recreate it yourself and see what you like about it, what you don't like about it, and how you would tweak it to put your spin on it. Uh, you could get the old uh, the Euchre's Guide. You can look at, uh, uh, I'm losing the, the, uh, the text, but I'm sure Mike Ferguson uh, will let us know. The um, Pendergrass book uh, has a bunch of uh, stories in there about that, and, as well as just talking to people, uh, if you could find out what they did for hotels in the 20s and and cruise ships and railroad lines, those kinds of blends are interesting and they could be made into classics or reborn with new life in them. So that's what I like to look to the past to look towards the future. Uh, The second thing is look at companies that blend interesting blends uh, and try to figure out what their thinking was as well. One of my favorite, I mean, and I came across it by example. I, I used to take a group of people at the SCAA uh, when we would go to Seattle on a morning coffee run. We would, usually new members, they don't know a lot of people, meet at the front of the hotel at 7 a.m. We're going to run a 10K, and we're going to stop at eight espresso bars, do a shot and keep running, and do another shot and keep running. And, I, and so we went to all the classic, Vivace and Vita and Lighthouse and, and Stumptown when it was, you know, when they were roasting there. But we were, were on the hunt. And every time I would keep going back to the uh, Vita espresso as being like, I just, there's something really unique about it. And uh, although the Vivace, you know, Schomer's blend is very, very classic and everyone covets it, I kept finding myself falling in love with the Vita. And when I went to read about it, I noticed that the the base of that espresso was a Java, which I had never heard anybody using that as a base for an espresso, and it just worked. And so I started messing with my version of that blend just as a hobbyist to, to pull shots and do it. And their blending was quite unique, and it actually quite it worked out quite well. And you wonder how they came up with it. Did they just stumble upon the blend? Did they hear about it? Did they read about it? Those are the things that stick out in my head. The other story about blending that 
is fascinating. And, and I wanted to open this subject up to you as well, Todd, because I know that this is uh, kind of something that we don't want to talk about, is dark roast and dark roast blending. Because the fact remains out here on the West Coast for almost every company, the demand for dark roast is very, very high. And no matter how you try to avoid it, you're going to get consumers demanding it. So you might, you may as well make it great. And uh, I've played with all types of different coffees, dark and messed around with them. And I heard from a customer on a phone that's one of a, a, a roaster that I highly admire for their blending capabilities uh, mentioned to me one time that they think and they believe that using aged coffees in dark blends was the best thing you could ever do. They've always been doing it. And I had never used an aged coffee in that sense before. I've always used aged coffees in espresso uh, because it adds a certain element that you can't get with non-aged coffees. But as you know, a little age goes a long way. It's a very, very pungent uh, addition. But when I went and experimented with doing this as a dark roast, it was amazing. It was incredibly uh, sweet and rich and caramelly, like burnt toffee kind of flavor. And when you added milk, it just completely transformed this, which most people who uh, consume dark coffees are adding milk. It was something I'd never, ever come across on my own before. And it's something that taught me more about dark roast blending. So those are my kind of standouts. Um, how about you, Todd? Yeah, no, it's it's interesting you bring up, uh, you know, t- talking about dark roast blending. And um, it's it's by no means, you know, a, a demand that's only made on the West Coast, I can assure you. I mean, you know, I think that given the, the emergence of, of the real uh, initial specialty culture on the West Coast and that the roasting style was a much more developed roast, um, as that was exported to the East Coast, you know, we we see a, a big contingent of early specialty coffee drinkers um, coming to the bar and saying, give me the real coffee, give me the dark roast. And so, you know, there's almost this challenge of, you know, that should be the best thing on the menu. And, and certainly over the years, uh, even as the, the emerging preference has been towards a, a lighter, more bright cup, um, we still see a huge portion, um, you know, of, of guests asking for a much more intense uh, darker roast coffee. And, you know, as you inevitably come into a place where you have to work some coffees off your position and, and get them, right. you know, off your floor, um, you know, you you really, you know, can spend quite dearly in this, uh, you know, part of your your offer list because using great, fresh, um, bright, uh, green coffees with lots of character, uh, as a more developed roast, uh, it can, is delicious. Um, I, you know, it's, sure. it's, um, you know, something to, that I, it was interesting. I was cupping a table of coffees and yesterday towards the end of the day, um, really nice, uh, 85 point, 86 point, um, micro lots coming from uh, the northwest of Honduras, and uh, you know I won't li- uh, bore you with the details, but you know really nice coffees that that very few, uh, if any, people will go out and sort of you know really develop near or into second crack in their roasting profiles. 
you know, and this was a coffee that just went over, you know, uh, in the sample roaster. And, you know, it's just crazy how delicious it was. It was just all the notes of apple and strawberry and raspberry just turned into this, you know, real nuanced dark chocolate type of uh, profile you get when you have these really high cacao drinking chocolates or solid bars Mm -hmm. Um, and it was the richness uh, you know and and sort of heft um, it was just so clear you know how appropriate this green coffee was uh, for this type of profile and 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 I realized you know hand in hand we have to you know have the opportunity cost of not realizing everything it might taste like at a lighter roast but but I I totally agree I mean you know I think that um uh, there's, there's so much potential there. Um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, my recommendation on, on where to start is, is, you know, to define, you know, the character, uh, you know, we probably right. come off like a broken record at this point with it, but, you know, start with the <laughs> why it's, 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 uh, you know, it's obviously the way to begin, you know, any marketing discussion, but I think it's also the, the way to begin any buying decision is, you know, where does this belong and, and do we need it? Why do we need it? What are we what are we trying to prove here? And I think that, you know, the very most basic of, uh, you know, solutions that come into line when you're, you know, most specialty roasters kind of on the verge of fitting out your your offer list with a couple blends is, well, we need something that's going to be uh, a workable, flexible and, and, you know, supremely crushable espresso coffee. What I imagine, uh, you know, when you describe Vita's coffee and, you know, that buttery, smooth, really, yeah. um, you know, kind of uh, workable from the barista standpoint, um, you know, coffee that you put in the hopper and, you know, in two minutes, you know, to pull a few shots and it has this fat, wide strike zone, um, you know, that you can do a lot with. And it's it's going to produce a range of characteristics that are all very good on their own and, and really pair well with milk um, because you know most retailers are are as much in the milk business as they are the espresso business so you know so that's really you know from there you know you can get into more um, challenging blends and you know more uh, sort of you know esoteric uh, reasons for them but um, that's kind of always where I begin you know I I know we're we're sort of coming into um, the, the end of our episode here, but, you know, I think we'd be remiss not to, you know, talk through at least briefly, you know, one of the biggest backups for blending historically and certainly another challenge um, if we're if we're honest and practical about this, but but also blending for price point. You know, I mean, yeah, you know, if this if, if this scan in anybody's uh, offer list or menu is going to make up for. Uh, somewhere between 60 and, and 80 percent of their volume, you know, whether one or, or multiple blends um, or sort of, you know, more house espresso blended coffees. I guess what are the what are the prudent ways to to buy, uh, you know, for price and to manage cost and value from your angle? You know, um, obviously, depending on the volume of the purchase, the flexibility in terms of what's available and, and, you know, how you might be able to buy in terms of, you know, on origin side, you know, if we're buying spot. Um, but I guess, you know, what are the things to keep in mind when you're asking the question, hey, can I get away with this? Um, or, yeah. you know, how do I manage the price into, you know, my target range? You know, is it investigate new origins, investigate new grades? 
Um, what are the, the sort of macro uh, things that, that you put on a buyer's radar? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that there's uh, there's a couple things to look at there. Uh, one is is that when you're blending, uh, even though we're using the term like you know blending blending for price or, or or budget blending, using top end coffees don't always work great in blends. And in, in fact, sometimes they make them too too muddled, too cloudy, you know, too confusing. And great blends you could be a little bit more relaxed on the grade of coffee. So, you know, the, 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 a logical person would say, oh, you know, I saw, you know, a classic commercial blend that was, uh, you know, Colombian, uh, you know, PNG and, uh, and Costa Rica. And the, the Costa Rica is the only thing that they spent the money on. They used, you know, uh, regular Colombian Excelso, and they use the PNG Y grade. So I'm going to step it up and use a top-end PNG and a top-end Colombia and a top-end uh, Costa Rica, and you're not getting a better blend. In fact, you're getting a much more confusing blend. So it's backing up and thinking, what is what coffee is the the showpiece, and then what do I need to blend around it to make it, you know, better. And that, that better may be body, and body, you don't have to spend a lot of money to get body. It may be sweetness, and you don't necessarily have to spend a lot of money to get sweetness. It just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Now, we here at Olam, I, I don't know where you guys are. I was going to get an update from you. But we, we do contests here, competitions in the office. And uh, again, trying to think of, of being a roaster and having the roaster mindset, the challenge for the trading and the QC team here was to create a blend that the overall finished product price was $2 a pound. That's roasted price of $2 a pound and uh, the best quality blend you can make. And in the end, each trader was able to come up with a really solid, I mean, a really solid blend that the individual components, you know, while some of the coffees may be 84 plus, the, the other components may not have been the finished blended product on average was 85 plus and the cup score. And they didn't have to, you know, spend a lot of money on these green coffees. They were able to accomplish this. Now for the, for the listeners here, we are going to be posting all of the recipes of the blends that did well in the competition up on the, the website at olamspecialtycoffee.com where you could actually see these recipes and pull samples and make them yourself and see if we're right or if we're wrong. Uh, you you don't have to uh, necessarily look at top grades for all of your, your coffees in the blend. Sometimes the supporting, the characters needed in that blend uh, need to be softer and sweeter and, and not so bright, not so punchy uh, because it becomes too much. Uh, and, and those coffees tend to be found at a better deal. And like I said earlier, if you look at these historic blends that that have been delicious over time that that airlines you know contracted and train companies contracted and and the US army they were using very very interesting coffees that were not necessarily expensive but end up together being so delicious and uh, looking at those types of blends those recipes and mimicking them with coffees that you can find today, some of these coffees, you know, that they used aren't even being produced anymore. But uh, to find the equivalent uh, is is a great place to start to to create something that's budget friendly, solid tasting, and that 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 good session coffee that we've been talking about all episode. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I mean, to riff on the on the music analogy, I, I you know, think about it on the cupping form the same way, you know, harmony uh, and balance. I mean, these are not, uh, you know, they're not uh, simply uh, the result of, you know, everything being posted up at 10, uh, you know, on a, on a scale. You know, you want... Uh, you know, the supporting cast with the, the main character and, and, you know, you want to be strategic about how, you know, these coffees can fit together like puzzle pieces, often leading you to some, some opportunistic buying, um, you know, as you fill in uh, for those um, supporting roles. So, um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely where the discussion begins on our side as well. And it's always awesome and satisfying from, from you know, my perspective um, to be able to sort of responsibly pair coffees, create value, and, uh, you know, see uh, the expansion of someone's, you know, business success in the process. Yeah. I mean, to use your music analogy, I would say uh, versus a, a bunch of people soloing uh, or, or coming in with their, 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 you know, their moment in the sun, a drummer, a, a bass player, you know, everybody going for it, almost like a, a, a avant-garde or, or type of uh, freeform jazz versus a James Brown rhythm section, which to me is the ultimate blend. Yeah, you said it. You know, it's interesting, uh, just to kind of bring it to a close, It's there's been a huge shift just sharing personally uh, where I used to visit cafes and I would, uh, I would ask for, you know, the crazy single origin on pour over, or I would ask for like, you know, the, the limited run espresso. And it's not to say I don't, but I feel like more and more, you know, you test the new cafe or, you know, you're going in and trying to, uh, you know, to kind of see what a, a particular roaster or partner at retail might be about. And, you know, it's, it seems like really the 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 way to tell um, philosophy is is in these blended coffees and these core coffees, right. um, yeah. you know. So I would uh, you know if any listeners are out there and that's not been an approach, I would certainly challenge you to make it. Um, don't undervalue these parts of your program if you cut up your your volume or cut up your sales by numbers. Uh, guaranteed, this is a huge, if not the foundational part of what you do. Um, and uh, it deserves that amount of care. But uh, Mark, it's been great chatting. I uh, appreciate you taking the time as always. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, thanks for tuning in to The Exchange presented by Olam Specialty Coffee. Uh, for The Exchange, I'm Mark Inman. And I'm Todd Mackey. And we'll see you on the next episode. You've been listening to The Exchange presented by Olam Specialty Coffee, hosted by Mark Inman and Todd Mackey, directed by Mike Ferguson. Our opening theme was You Asked for Coffee, I Gave You Coffee and Cornflakes by Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Our closing theme, Coffee with Mr. Jenkins by Glassboy and Mr. Jenkins. Both used under and available from Creative Commons. If you have questions you would like Mark and Todd to consider answering during the podcast, send an email to theexchange at olamnet.com. Dot com. That's the exchange at olamnet.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on The Exchange, presented by Olam Specialty Coffee.